Cameron. I'm a third year here at Georgia, and I'm going to be reading the scripture for tonight. So we're reading uh, Acts 15, verses 1 through 34. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from the lips, from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by pulling on the necks of Gentiles, by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. The ruins I will rebuild, and I will restore it, that the rest of mankind, mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things, things known from long ago. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the, earth, from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Then the apostles and elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas, called Barsabas, and Silas, men who were leaders among the believers. With them, they sent the following letter. The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. We have heard that some went out, went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. So the men were sent off and went down to Antioch, where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the believers. After spending some time there, they were sent off by the believers with a blessing of peace to return to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, where they and many others taught and preached the word of the Lord. Father, I am very, very aware of my weakness right now. Um, 
my inability to save anyone here, um, to help them uh, know you more personally. That is something that can only be done by your spirit. We thank you for who you are, and I pray that you use my, my weakness right now, my words that I want to use that I'm not really sure how they're going to come out. Uh, Abigail prayed that you give these people ears to listen. I pray you give them ears to understand what I'm about to say, because, um, Lord, I'm, I'm a little confused myself. Father, uh, speak through me tonight and preserve your gospel as you did 2,000 years ago. And I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So, hopefully the story I'm about to share doesn't fill all of you who are about to graduate this year, or in Chip's case, in like a month-ish, something like that. Uh, I had a friend uh, back in college that had a very nightmarish few hours um, before she graduated. Uh, to back it up, she had always been a very diligent, driven student, like a lot of y'all are. Uh, she had an excellent GPA, a great relationship with her department um, and her advisors, and over the course of college, she had built a pretty impressive resume in preparation to graduate and to step in uh, to the real world. Um, she looked forward to that. Um, academia kind of bogged her down. She was done with it after, what, 20 years of her life. Um, she, and she was a very career-driven person, couldn't wait for that promised land. All of y'all are looking forward to, to finally be done with tests and papers and obnoxious group projects that you don't know why your teacher assigned to you, um, and, and just classes in general um, that you don't understand the relevance to what you're about to go and do. Um, even if you're in the minority in the room and actually enjoy academia, you can empathize with the annoyance it can be to not be able to read a book for your own enjoyment because you have so much other stuff to do. Um, it's getting in the way of you actually doing things you want to enjoy. You want that promised land of actually being, having more liberty with your time. By this point in the year, uh, things were really looking up for her. She had taken her final test of her academic career. She had received approval long ago to graduate that she had everything taken care of. Um, and actually accepted a job offer that she would start a month after graduation. She had planned a vacation to celebrate um, the end of her academic career. And she was just a few short days away from finally getting that multi-thousand dollar piece of paper she'd worked so hard for. Uh, she was cruising and finally free of what had been a, become a burden in her life. And then the absolute worst thing happened. She received an email from the registrar saying that a mistake had been made, that uh, her credentials to graduate were actually not approved, and uh, she would have to delay her graduation and stay another semester. Um, and everything about her life was falling apart. She had even signed a lease, so she didn't have to move in with her parents. She was going to be paying two leases at the same time. Uh, at some point along the line, there was a miscommunication. She didn't take the right classes. She had studied abroad a year before and thought she had done everything she needed to make sure those classes counted, and they didn't. She was caught in fine print she didn't know was there. Uh, something she knew to be true ended up not being true. And she was desperate. She didn't, she, it, her life was falling apart, and she was in disarray. Fortunately, 
she found out that it had just been missing, misplaced paperwork. She had actually gotten the approval. She did get to graduate a few short days later, but only after the most anxiety-inducing 24 hours of her life, right? And what almost happened was some man-made fine print, stuff that actually wasn't true but was placed there, almost took the promise away from her. She didn't know what to do because this seemed like it was true, and she didn't have anything to go off of other than just mercy of circumstances, something else outside of her proving that she actually could receive the promise of graduation that she had worked so hard for. And it's hard to see reading a passage that's about circumcision and laws of Moses, uh, it, like what the argument is, because we're so far removed from that context. But it's a lot like what, hap- what happened to my friend. She thought she understood the promise. What was at stake? What, what would it take for her to be released of the burden? And then just as she thought they had, as, lo- as soon as the Gentiles thought they had it, it, slipped, it was taken away from them by something outside of themselves, and they were sent to disarray. It, it seems, yeah, like I said, it seems like an antiquated argument, um, but this is what we see is the distress a false gospel can cause. When someone comes in, adds something to what is true, to the work that Jesus has done, saying that there's something left for you to do. Acts 14 ends with Gentiles, uh, non-Jewish people, um, which it was just a blanket term given to anyone who was not um, uh, Jewish. And, and uh, at the end of Acts 14, these people were coming to know Jesus Christ uh, and were receiving the gospel that had been promised to the people of God at a wide scale for the first time in history. Finally, redemption was available to um, people who weren't uh, culturally and ethnically Jewish, a part of God's people. Through the evangelistic efforts of Paul and Barnabas, through the power of the Holy Spirit, the gospel at this point in Acts is spreading at a wide scale out to the nations. People in communities who had never been aware for generations of old Jewish traditions, ceremonies, or practices are hearing the good news of Jesus, that they simply need to give faith in the work, death, and resurrection of this this person who came down from heaven um, and died, resurrected, and went back up. Um, Oh, sorry, dry mouth. (sighs) (laughs) They heard this good news and they believed it to be true. They understood the gospel. And although Jewish Christians, people who were from the old tradition of God's people who had received Christ, they knew that they had been commanded that they should go out and make disciples of all nations. They had grown up understanding that that was something that was true, that the promise would be made available to all, all of the people of the earth. Um, but what they had misunderstood was they thought that they knew the normal signs, behaviors, and practices of people claiming to be the people of God um, how that would show up once people were converted. That's what they were, they thought they knew what they were looking for to see true conversions or not true conversions. And with the, these Gentile believers, people who have never been a part of Jewish culture, that wasn't there. 
These people were not circumcised when they professed faith. These people were not um, doing the normal practices and following the normal holidays. They weren't doing any of that. And they weren't following any of the cleansing rituals laid out by Moses. And they were confused. They were confused by how they were just eating whatever they want, stuff that just, it was offensive to their senses. Um, yet the Gentiles were still claiming that they had received the salvation promised to the people of God. And there's people vouching for him. See, what was happening is these believers were rejoicing in fellowship with one another, worshiping the God they had come to know, something that should be praised. Thank you. <laughs> um, and each and every day, they were learning real-time what it meant to behave and operate in this new life-giving relationship and worldview. They knew the gospel, but it looked different because they didn't grow up in the same culture and the same traditions as the Jewish people. And that's when the Jewish Christians came in. They were like, this isn't what's supposed to happen. There's still something that you have to do before you're able to be saved. Uh, they introduced this new teaching to the Gentiles that they heard, heard, didn't hear before. It was contrary to the gospel that they had been professing faith in and shaping their life around. And suddenly, this promise that they thought they had received was snatched from them. They were disoriented. They didn't know what to believe. A false gospel had come into the midst, and there was something left for these Gentiles to do to secure their relationship with God. That, and that's where things fell apart. They thought they had received God's promise, and it was gone. You see, the, the cultural differences at play were only the tip of the iceberg in this passage. It was not simply that people were behaving or looked different. Um, this isn't a question of, like, what does a Christian look like? It's these, these major differences in, differences in lifestyle and upbringing only magnified the problem enough to let us know that it was there. The debate was not over nitty-gritty doctrinal or cultural differences. We weren't, we're not talking about how you should be baptized, if you should be dunked, if you should be sprinkled. That's not what we're talking about here. We're not talking about if you should be uh, singing hymns in worship or you should, if you should be singing Chris Tomlin or Fred Hammond. That's not what this is. The key wording at play is in verse 1 and verse 5, where Jewish Christians are arguing that these things are necessary to be done in order for God to be able to save you. That these people had to do something to get to God before God would reach out and save them. And uh, for what Jesus did to count for you, you needed to do certain things first and maintain your end of the bargain. This is the first moment in history where the, the accuracy of the gospel is being threatened in how it's being taught and going out into the world. That's the importance of what's going on here. This is, this is about what makes you a Christian and what gives you certainty of that when you doubt it. When we, get, when we get underwater and see the rest of the iceberg, we see this is a matter of what is the gospel? What is the good news that Jesus Christ brings? On one camp, you have Paul, Barnabas, and the Gentile believers saying that grace is given by faith in Jesus Christ alone and is the only thing that can save humanity. And on the other, we see the Christian Pharisees, people who were professing believers who were saying that it's Jesus plus something else. 
Jesus will be the person that saves you, but you have to get to him first. They agreed on the Jesus saving part. And this gospel was disguised as piety, as love for God. But there was fundamental differences on what you had to do to love God and to be loved by him. So which one is right? Nearly 2,000 years removed from this, how can you be certain that the gospel you have been taught is the true gospel? God, does God protect his people from, ta- from false teaching? And if so, is there space for you to voice your doubts and bring them to light and wrestle with what God has to say and be assured that you're, he's still going to love you? Yeah. The really cool thing about the book of Acts and studying all of church history is that you get to learn your family story, how the gospel has been preserved over all of these years and not been tainted by sin or lies of the devil in the people who are being taught it. Christian, you're a believer today because of what the Spirit made happen right here on this page. When the teaching of the true gospel gets threatened, the Spirit of God moves those who he has raised up to be leaders within the church to humble themselves before Scripture, discern the true gospel from the false one, and move forward seeking to preserve the good news and the unity of the church. The Spirit pushes us into healthy conflict with one another, calls us to wrestle with the doubts that are on the table, that are in our hearts. Uh, and we calls to do that with one another so that we may more deeply understand the gospel together as the unified family of God he has made us to be so that the oppression may sin, of sin may be purged out and together we can depend more on Christ. We saw this in the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD as they discerned if Jesus was actually God and able to save you or if he was just a, a righteous man to follow. We saw this during the Protestant Reformation back in 1517 when leaders were raised up to teach that the Bible had complete authority over man, not the other way around, and that salvation could not be bought or insured by anything we do, that there isn't anything left for us. Notice that there's a common theme throughout history. Satan wants us to believe that there's something left for us to do, that there's barriers left between us and being restored. And you see that through all of church history. And time and time and time again, you see that the gospel has been preserved. And, and that, this isn't something that just happens 500 years ago. Every single Bible-believing denomination in church, this is why the local church is important, y'all. They all have protective systems and governing structures to protect what's being taught in the churches and to prevent false gospels from being taught. Be wary of any church where you don't hear the Bible being taught. Just last year, a general assembly, which is um, the governing body of the denomination REF is a part of, uh, matters of can you struggle with sexuality in a... Can you, present tense, struggle with sexual brokenness and still be saved and still be assured of your salvation and still be a part of the church? Uh, every single day, matters of the gospel are being discussed and preserved to try to discern where we have strayed and where we need to be corrected um, to preserve that there is no barrier between the church and, and our Savior. Each of these pivotal moments and many others follow the example 
that Peter, Paul, and James sit right here. This is the first council. This is the first time we see a matter of what is the gospel and what is not being brought before people. This is the first major threat um, to any of y'all being saved today. They took in all the arguments and accounts of what happened, examined them to see if they lined up with Scripture, and presented a unified biblical stance. You can, you can see evidence of that in verse 16 and 17 when James goes back and quotes uh, the book of Amos, one of God's prophets, to justify Peter's stance and accounts given by Paul and Barnabas. Nothing would have mattered if it, what they were saying, what they were seeing, didn't line up with the Scripture. That was their authority. That's how we can know that what came out of this was from the Word of God. You see that also in the letter that they write back to the Gentiles, stating first that this stamp seemed good foremost to the Holy Spirit, not to themselves, not something that was created by man. They did not give themselves glory for the decision or the theology that was being presented. It was simply, this is what the Lord says is true. This is what you should follow. This is what you should be, believe and be assured by. They did not move forward without certainty from the Word of God, and what was discerned was that what was presented to these Gentile believers was a false gospel. And it can seem like, so what? What's the big deal? They still believed in Jesus, right? When you aren't seeking to have good theology, that still has an effect on you. That has an effect on your relationship with God uh, how, and how you view yourself. Theology, thoughts have an entire mind, body, and soul impact on you. They can bring you despair, or they can free you from burdens. How can we discern if we've accidentally taken in and internalized a false gospel? Peter tells us what believing a false gospel will do. If you look, starting in verse 8, he says, God who knows the heart showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God putting, by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? I, I didn't really understand when I was going through this what Peter was saying mainly because I didn't know what the word yoke meant. Like, like Colin, there's some old language in here that we have to, have to flesh out. I thought we were talking about some part of an egg and was really confused. Um, turns out that this is a harness that is put on uh, animals and livestock being used for farming to attach them to the device that they're going to plow, what they're going to go and do work in. So why is that what Peter is using to describe the false gospel being presented? Jewish Christians were not wrong for valuing circumcision and the law in the Old Testament. It should be valued. What was wrong was how they fundamentally misunderstood its purpose. And if you grew up in the same context I did of the Bible Belt South, things are sublimely communicated to you along the same lines. The things that they thought made us eligible to be saved were designed to be a mirror. They were to show us that there is even such a thing as, un as clean and unclean, that we are unbearably inadequate. The point of the law is to show you we can't do it, not to oppress you. The, the point of the law is not 
to be a set of rules and guidelines to restrict your life away from the things that are fun. Is, is, the point of the law is to show you that you fall short and that you're broken and that you can't live up to God's standard. You cannot earn your salvation. You just simply can't do it. That's what Peter means when he says that neither our ancestors nor ourselves have been able to bear this standard. Because Israel tried to do that during the entire Old Testament. And the Jewish Christians were trying to do it here. And subconsciously, we fall into that same trap. The Old Testament is a clear story that God's people are weak and are in desperate need of being rescued. What God gives us in the law is a lens to see why we feel so broken and that we cannot possibly heal ourselves. What God's people desperately need is a Savior to restore us. That Savior was promised to Israel from day one. I'll take all back to Genesis if you want to talk after this so I can prove that to you. Um, but we're going to keep moving forward. That Savior came freely in Jesus, but they were still trying to earn something that was a gift to them. They didn't believe that they already had what was given to them. How do you know if you have, a, have allowed a false gospel to sneak into your heart, that you're trying to supplement Jesus, that you're trying to secure your own salvation? I struggle to come up with concrete examples for this because I don't know y'all's heart. I don't know where you're trying to chase after worth to try to heal that brokenness that you feel. I don't know what y'all are trying to cover up. I can't see into that. How we understand the gospel always has a heart, mind, and soul effect, though. And if you aren't alert in all these areas of your life, it can be hard to discern when a false gospel is sneaked in. A big red flag, though, is when those three things aren't in line with each other. When what you know, what you feel is true about yourself in the world around you, and how you're relating to the world around you, if those things aren't lining up, that's a red flag that you've believed a false gospel. And it really comes out when the insecurity of where you're trying to find your identity and to perform is threatened. The very thing that you're trying to get your worth, security, or love from will be the very thing that ends up oppressing you, that makes you hate the things you naturally love to do. The thing that your resource, it becomes the thing that your resources and your time is predominantly going towards to prove that you are something. You are never enough here. More and more and more is always demanded of you. You are consistently falling short here. And you've covered that up because you're trying to be a good Christian and you're trying to show that you don't have doubts. That you're confident that you believe in God well enough that you're going to be saved and that he does actually love you. It's the brutally, vulnerably honest reason why you're trying to be morally right the way that you are. It is what is eating away at your heart, mind, and soul. And you eventually, things might be going well for a while, but then you realize what you're chasing is hollow, and it can't save you, but you've built your life around it. And you try to preserve that. And you try to do all you can do to cover up this part about your life. If you're a Christian, it's making you second guess if things are really okay between you and God or if you blew it this time. 
Are you actually worth anything, or is everything about your life a fractal act so that people think you have it all together? The doubts about if you have done enough to make up for how you fall short are keeping you up at night. If you let the community around you see that part of you that makes you feel worthless, you're afraid that they're going to reject you and affirm that you're unsavable, that you're too dirty for God. And then the ultimate effect of a false gospel is that the very thing that you're trying to use to supplement Jesus is the barrier between you and Jesus. The false gospel you have to get... Uh, it, the false gospel that you have to get yourself to God will keep you out of a secure relationship with him. And what is supposed to be good news becomes bad news to you because now there's a God you love that hates you. Remember the story I shared at the beginning? How the, the promise was snatched away? That's what the false gospel will do. It'll always sneak up behind you right when you think you have the promise, right when you think you've just earned it enough and take it from you. And then you go into despair. And then that's where anxiety comes from. That's where de- depression comes from. It will always make you doubt. Although you may feel these doubts, and they may be paralyzingly real to you, I stand before you with absolute certainty that the promise won't get snatched from you, even if you struggle with, with that theology, believing that you can mess up, that you can get things wrong, that you can be present tense broken and loved by God at the same time. There is space for you to struggle with that and not worry that the promise is going to get snatched from you. Because at, as we see from the decision made by the Jerusalem Council, this is not how Jesus came to save the world. You don't have to get your theology right before he can save you. You get to receive that salvation by realizing how much you need him. And then from that spot, develop that theology and learn about who he is more fully and more personally. We see that you're not made clean by how well you behave, how much you think you're worth, or how strong your faith is. Right here in Acts 15.9, we see that God knows every inch of your heart. Yes, the parts of it that you're too ashamed to let anyone else see. And out of compassion, he sent his son into the world for, to die for that specific way you feel worthless, for that specific way that you're still believing a lie but don't know it yet. And then to be resurrected and to reveal himself to you offering you the gift of his Holy Spirit freely so that you may be restored from your brokenness into a secure, worthy relationship with him. The reality is that you, me, and the world that we live in is broken beyond human repair. And there is space for you to be a Christian and have no idea what to do with what I just told you, to wrestle with what I just said, and to not live it out perfectly all the time. To constantly fumble through what it means to behave and relate to this perfect loving God like your, like your father and your brothers and sisters that are in this room right now. And you want to know how I know this? Actually from the life of Peter in the book. You see, Peter, he's, he was installed to be the found, uh, one of the foundations of the church as the apostles. One that's setting the uh, gospel message right and spreading it out to the Gentiles. 
And after this decision gets made, after he gives this amazing speech about what is the gospel and what's not, he then goes and visits uh, the church in Antioch, where these uh, Gentile believers are. And this is how he behaves. But when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. This is Galatians 2, uh, 11 through 14. For before certain believers uh, came uh, out of Israel, so these people are Jews as well, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party, the party that he just directly opposed before everyone at this council. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas, who went with Paul to defend this gospel, was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you, though like a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to also live like Jews? The, the man that was defending the true gospel straight away, he was prone to wander as well as the hymn says. But Jesus still trusted him with, with ministry. Jesus still saved him too as he was wrestling with it and being corrected and learning how to live as a, as a child of God and going out into do mission. I know this also to be true for myself. I'm an Enneagram type 2. And I, I have my thoughts about the Enneagram and how it's used. I got my beefs with it. Um, but I do think it's helpful to, be, to, to become more self-aware in order to know where you need to grow, to know, to know um, what your tendencies are. And, and for me, I, I enjoy being helpful. My first instinct is to serve. I find delight in that. Uh, I enjoy just doing things alongside people, providing practical needs where they are. And that's not an inherently bad thing. Uh, that comes out in me enjoying teaching. That comes out uh, in, in me helping people move, uh, cooking meals for people. And that, that's how God made me. And that's good. And every single day that's being restored and repurposed uh, for the good of his kingdom. But just as Peter, I'm marred by sin. And what that looks like is me being prone to try to find my identity and how helpful I am. Right? I, I try, I, I love this job. I, I love y'all. And y'all keep asking me if I want to do a third year or not, or if I want to stay, and, and, and all this stuff. And the chief thing that makes me hesitate from committing is... Deep down, I don't want to harm what's happening here. I, I want to be useful to you guys, and I'm afraid that I'm going to mess up and blow it <laughs> and get fired and leave y'all just to figure this life out in college on your own. I know that a life I know is hard, as if any of that depends on me. I get filled with massive anxiety every time I've prepped a sermon so far. Because I want y'all to know God, um, but at the same time, I want to be helpful, you guys. And every single time, God breaks me of that as I'm prepping this sermon. 
And the last time, I, actually, I got filled with that anxiety so much and that insecurity that I was inadequate to be up before you, that the last time I preached, I actually threw up the morning before. That's what happens when a, a false gospel has, just behind your back, subverted its, itself into you. When you start to try to find your identity in something else. This was hard. I, I'm real time in front of you being purged of a false gospel. And there's space for that. There's space to voice doubts and how you feel deep down God doesn't love you and you blew it. Because I assure you that the glory of the gospel is this. Peter, uh, Paul goes on in Galatians. to say in verse 17, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too are found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to, myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. See, the, the law is the only exists to bring us back to him and make us aware of our need for him. Our only hope is if he restores us. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. If I could do anything to lose my salvation, I'm diminishing who Christ is. If I could do anything to make you lose your salvation, I'm diminishing who Christ is. And the same thing is true for you too. There's space in this community for you to not feel like you get it. To wrestle with the Bible has to say, to admit that there's, there's stuff in there that you have a hard time with. That there's parts of your heart that you haven't let been known there's space to just feel unbearable brokenness and to be loved by this community. There's space, there's space for all of that. And we want that. We want to bear those burdens with you. Because we see even more the glory of the gospel in Acts 15. And I'll, I'll reread it. I already read it. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. By faith. But, and we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. All God requires of you is that you look to him and know you need him. And then from that moment, the game's on. The Holy Spirit's in you and doing a work in you. And he's not leaving either. The glory of the gospel is that you may fall short, but the gospel doesn't change. Because you see, Jesus came down. Real life in person, God came down in the flesh into the brokenness of the world. And at the same time, he was holding the world in his hands. The same God that breathed life into you and has seen all of human history play out 
came down, inserted himself into human history, and experienced the brokenness with us. And he lived the perfect life. He resisted temptation the way we have not. He was a blessing to the world in the way that we have not. He was perfectly faithful in the ways that we have doubted. He has not chased after things where his identity did not lie. And then he died the death we all should have died. All of the brokenness of human history before him and all of it after him was placed on him on the cross so much that crucifixion usually lasts three days and the God that holds the world in his hand was on it for three hours. And then he resurrected himself. He defeated the sin. And that's not going to change no matter how much you doubt. No matter how much you mess it up, you have... All God wants is for you to turn to him and just look at him and come out into the light and be known. And then what's the effect of believing the true gospel? Actually stepping out into the light and being known, letting that part of your soul that you haven't let see daylight, those doubts that you have, those ways that you've been hurt that are making you feel worthless, letting that be held, relief. I was paralyzed in anxiety three hours ago. And then I got to the end part of the sermon and was reminded of the gospel. And I got the strength to come up here. And while I'm present tense struggling right now, and my words are fumbled, and I might have not said things correctly, I'm stepping out in faith because I want you all to know the glory of God and that there's space to feel weak and to feel inadequate. You get a restoration of yourself. Those things that you naturally enjoy doing, are you, you, you get filled with life back to do them again. They're not demanding more from you, but you get to just do them and be a blessing to the world. You get unity. You, you, get, you get family. The, the holidays are coming up, and we're going to celebrate a lot of that here in the next few weeks. And... You might not like your family at home. It might be hard. But in Christ, you get a family of believers that loves you and loves spending time with you and that you get to enter into the mess with and also celebrate the, the joy of future restoration, the hope that we have as Christians with each other. You get rejoicing and strengthening as we see, as they receive the unified gospel message you get the strength to actually follow God's commandments in a way that's life-giving and not oppressive to you. And it's giving life and being a blessing to those around you. You become more secure in your standing before God. And you actually let yourself be known by those around you. And I keep repeating this. Yes, those parts you're absolutely terrified to let go of. The parts of yourself that you can't get over how vile you are, the thoughts you think in your head. Under a false gospel where you try to supplement Jesus, you're burdened exponentially by the weight of yourself, and you can't escape it. And once you finally give up on the charade and accept that your only hope is in Jesus to ever be restored and be made right, you become free to look out into the world and delight in what the Lord has made and what he has called you to 
and your ability to engage with it. And the promise that we get to be in fellowship with him for the rest of our life. And all those ways you feel burdened are going to get lifted. No matter how well you faithfully believe that promise. It's a promise God's made, and he's, he's cashed in that check. It's secured for you. And if you take anything away from my full message, fumbled message tonight, it's that. That in Christ, if you acknowledge how much you need him, he'll, he'll restore you. Um, my message might have been fumbled. My thoughts might not have all been there. You might, might have been confused. You might have dazed out. But uh, the best thing about REF is that it doesn't all depend on me. God's working through a lot of y'all. Um, and the worship team's about to get up here in a second. And Colin made a really good point that in the songs we sing, that's also a way for us to learn the gospel and to be reminded of what is true. Uh, it's something we can engage with. And I encourage y'all, uh, I think especially the next song, it's simple it's concise, and sing it as a prayer that it will ring true on your heart if you believe it now, and if you don't believe it right now, that the Lord will do a work in you to be sure that what you're about to sing is actually true about yourself. It's something you get to engage with. I'll pray. Father, first off, if I said that anything that misrepresented who you are, the work that you have done, the glory of who you are, and your power and your majesty, anything that could prevent these people from knowing who you are and being restored by your work and resurrection, purge it from their ears. Correct it. Use the words that I've said to bring restoration to these people, to be reminded of the gospel to believe the gospel for the first time, that there's space for them to wrestle with who you are. Father, I pray that as we go forward in song, that the words that we were about to sing who, that have been laboriously made by people that you have called to yourself, who you have redeemed, and who have very, very knowledgeably and eloquently come to know who you are, I pray that these words be, ring true in our hearts as we go forward from here. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.